You're listening to the Local Futures Podcast. In this series, we explore the power of a growing worldwide movement. The movement to shift away from corporate globalization and consumerism in favor of strengthening local economies and place-based cultures. This episode features a conversation between Local Futures director Helena Norberg-Hodge and Jeremy Lent. Described by journalist George Monbiot as one of the greatest thinkers of our age, Jeremy is the founder of the Lyology Institute and the author of The Patterning Instinct and, most recently, The Web of Meaning. His work investigates the underlying causes of our civilization's existential crisis and explores pathways toward a life-affirming future. In his own words, his work has been a journey of many years, during which he dedicated himself full-time to deep research in disciplines such as neuroscience, history and anthropology, and to exploring the great traditions of Buddhism, Taoism, Neo-Confucianism, and indigenous wisdom. In this conversation, Helena and Jeremy unpack many of the assumptions and worldviews that underpin modern society's destructive trajectory. At the same time, they outline worldview transformations that can and do contribute to a vision for a more sustainable and humane future, a future that both Helena and Jeremy truly believe to be within our grasp. May their conversation resonate and inspire. Jeremy, thanks so, so much for doing this. It's really a great honor. Well, the honor is all mine, Helena, to be in conversation with you. Thank you. Well, I've been admiring your work for a long time. And, uh, you know, we were trying to teach a course together and hope that we we can do that sometime. I expect so. Yeah, I look forward to that. Was that how many years ago was that? Was that about three, four years? I ago? think no, so. Was yeah, it was a four. few years now. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Things uh, a lot's changed since then. Certainly, uh, dramatically. Some for the better, and a lot for the worse. Unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. Well, for <laughs> me, the better and the worse is I was just reflecting on how crazy it is that it's difficult to get a message out that is about our connection to nature and the need to wake up to that reality and shift our worldview so that we don't keep treating nature and ourselves as a machine. Um, And I I really, really hope that your work is going to get out even more widely that I can also see in my circles that it is actually getting out there quite a lot recently. And you must be feeling that yourself. That's great to hear. Yeah, it's interesting because what I've been sensing since this new book, The Web of Meaning, just got published uh, just a few months ago, is it's as though people who are somewhat open uh, to some aspect of this alternative worldview, it could be all kinds of things, it could be in their scientific work or political work or community work, but that group of people gets the book and they love it and they just come alive with it. The challenge is to break into the mainstream because even because I, I think the message of the book is designed, the, the whole book is designed to appeal to mainstream people as well as people who are already somewhat woken up to things. But it's getting the mainstream to even notice something like that is what I think is the real challenge. Yeah, well, I, I think we should start off by talking about the fact that Yuval Harari managed to completely break through into the mainstream 
Right. And you and I are both in agreement about the fact that the reason that happened was because he's not really questioning the mainstream. Because yeah. in a fundamental yeah. way, and in quite a dangerous way, he's reinforcing foundations of the mainstream worldview that really need to be reassessed. And I think, you know, you have outlined those really clearly. And I, I think it would be a good idea for us to go through those, you know, briefly step by step, if you're happy to do that. Oh, sure. Yes, yeah. I, I, I'd be happy to. Um, <clears throat> and um, yeah, I, I think it's an interesting place to explore. And, you know, the, the th thing about Harari, and in fact, when I wrote this article that was critiquing his ideas, I wrote it more like as an open letter to him, because honestly, I, I, see, I see Harari as being, I think, a really good-hearted, deep-thinking, wonderful person. So I don't for an instance think of him as somebody who's like, you know, trying to make a buck or trying to make himself popular, or all this kind of stuff. Um, and I think uh, he, he would probably, if he was in conversation, he'd probably say, how can you say that? I'm questioning the very foundations. I'm pointing out what people just don't see because they're just blind to the fact that we make up all these stories about things. And I agree he's doing all that. But in, in this article I wrote that was critiquing him, I feel that the, the problem is that he, the, it's the, in the questions he's asking and the questions he doesn't ask. And even the questions he asks have implicit in them the dominant worldview that the irony is that he's the very one who says, you know, I try to see the truth because, um, you know, we, we are filled with all these fictions that we base our world on. But I honestly believe that there are some fictions that he himself is immersed in that he doesn't even realize he's actually in. Exactly. And I think, you know, I think from what I remember, the first one that you outlined was this, essentially seeing the world, the living Gaia and including mm -hmm. its humanity as a machine in this mechanistic way. Yes. And that's of course what your work is about in such an important way, learning from, from the Eastern worldviews that go back many thousands of years. And that was also my experience living in a culture that was supported, I would say. I would say it was supported by that worldview. The deeper support was actually living in a more intimate way with Gaia. But mm. can you say a bit more of some of the telltale signs of how you are? And I agree. I agree, absolutely, not through some kind of ill intention to right. try to keep the system going, but in his slightly blinkered way, how does he show that he still sees the world as a machine? Right, well, I think he, it primarily comes through when he talks about where we may be going. And he talks about, and he's quite right again to point out the incredible power of artificial intelligence, of AI that um, that may is kind of already beginning to dominate so much about our minds. But where he sort of goes wrong is he'll basically talk about, uh, he'll sort of explain that basically humans are just mere data machines. We're just information processing machines, just very complex ones. But there, he seems no essential distinction between the information processing machine of an AI and a human one. Yeah, we have hormones, he says, like that make us feel certain ways. And so, so his notion is that a, a supercharged AI <clears throat> could get to the point where it can actually be so monitoring us that it knows exactly which hormone gets uh, produced, 
not just if we listen to a particular kind of song, but even like what song itself will do this and that to us. So as if we're, we're just these really complex machines that we can get right to the bottom of. And that's what misses the fundamental distinction between any living organism, even a single cell, never mind um, animals uh, and, and, and very much human beings um, and machines. Because as living organisms, we are not just, um, it's not just sort of that it's difficult to figure us out, but we are nonlinear inherently. We have all these complex ways of things relating to each other. And there's, we're driven by what's known as reciprocal causality, where all the little parts affect the whole. And meanwhile, the whole is affecting all the parts. And a, lo a lot of reductionist scientists will say, oh, that's kind of some woo-woo emergent nonsense. That's just basically what system science understands how complex systems work. Yeah, and that's also for me key in that is the fundamental reality of the diversity of every living cell, of every living human leaf, every moment changing from moment to moment in that reciprocal complex way. So the elements influencing the change are also unique in that very moment. And I think, yeah, I just so agree that this truth, and which is now, thank goodness, as it were being proven in science, needs to get out. And I think, Jeremy, that right now for me, this um, faith in AI and the propaganda for AI, which comes from very, very dark quarters because it's coming from an accumulation right. of capital that has benefited from algorithmic monstrous mm -hmm. control and wealth creation. And so it's one of the most important issues of the day, which path we're going to choose towards this technosphere or towards nature and the complexity of nature. That's right. And I see COVID as sort of creating a fork in the road where much of the banking and techno world has benefited from COVID. But in the meanwhile, humanity has developed an even deeper and greater attitude or, or need for nature and connection, wouldn't you say? Yes, I would. I think, I think what we've seen with COVID really is an, an even further exacerbation of some of these divides that we're all experiencing. And um, so that it, it's just mind blowing how in the US, the billionaire tech uh, owners have had their wealth like something like triple um, while the whole world is reeling from this disaster. Um, and you know, when you look at things like the availability of vaccines, you have people in the global North talking about should they get their third, yeah, their booster shot and all that stuff, when like 97% of people in the global South don't have access to a vaccine, whether they want it or not, they don't even have the access. These divides are so extreme. And I think COVID is just pointing them out even more. Yeah, well, I think COVID has pointed them out and exacerbated them because in yes. our work, we've been studying the impact of globalization and this widening right. between rich and poor for a long time, and it's been escalating. Yes. Um, but I would love to come back to Harari because I yeah. do, as you do too, you know, so many of our colleagues read that book and thought of it as radical. They <laughs> thought of it as actually helpful. And it yeah. was very painful for me to have to say, well, look at this, because he, this, this, 
um, conviction that we are like machines also extends into a completely uncritical and um, se seemingly a passive fatalistic pronouncement that we're going to be going in that direction, that there's no right. choice. So there's no alternative. Yeah. I think that is a key, if there's any, if there's one single thing that um, concerns me about Harari's message and how it's interpreted in the world is that, and here he is, he's got something like, I think 15 million people around the world. We're talking about um, influences, people who are like reading intellectuals around the world, reading his book, and he can have such an impact in helping to shift people's perceptions. But he does have, he brings to his writing, exactly this kind of fatalism, which um, I would conjecture, well, I think he's, he says it himself, comes from his mode of um, meditation practice, which is one which is very much, it's called the Goenka tradition. It's very much about just perceiving whatever it is and not engaging in it. Like, so if you're sitting there in a very uncomfortable <clears throat> position, if your legs feels cramped, you don't say, oh, my leg is cramping. Let me, <clears throat> you know, just kind of move position so it'll be more comfortable. The whole point of it is to sit there, watch, observe the pain and somewhat sort of dissociate yourself from it. And then seeing, okay, this is pain. I understand it deeply. And th this is not to critique um, any kind of meditation practice. It's got some a great path that can lead to great insights. But what that path alone um, tends to do is lead people to feel a sense of separation from ongoing things that are going on. So it's like when you read Harari's books, you can feel as if you've just taken a satellite out there to outer space and you're looking at the earth and there it is separate and you're watching it and you say okay now i've got this 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 kind of spaceman's view of what's going on there and it feels different than what you're actually engaged in so you can say this is what's going to happen take it or leave it i'm just saying what i see whereas i think both buddhist meditation practice uh, the kind of practices that i engage with more um and also uh, systems thinking itself can lead to a different way of looking at the future, realizing it's not a spectator sport. It's not something that happens out there. It's actually something that we are co-creating, that the future itself can be seen not even as a noun, but as a verb. It's the unfolding of what all of us are doing right now um, that, uh, that creates the, the conditions for whatever happens next. Yeah, and I think to a couple of things related to that. I loved seeing you use the term cultural mindfulness. I love that. And I'd like to come back to that, but I also want to say that for me, I see a lot of Western Buddhists, from my point of view, misinterpreting Buddhist teachings by believing that the Buddha taught that life is change, life is constant process and change, and part of the enlightened perspective is to go with that flow. Now, what I'm trying to explain is that the systems of change that we now witness, most of them in modern society, are born of a worldview which rejected that truth of the processes of change in the mm -hmm. living world, rejected mm -hmm. the truth of our interdependence with that, mm -hmm. rejected the truth of the yeah, essentially of the need for us to respect that reality of yes. Gaia. The world that the Buddha was talking about was Gaia. 
It wasn't a modern fossil fuel-based techno-economic society that was widening the gap between rich and poor while polluting and poisoning and pillaging more and more. And this is where, for me, it's quite tragic that many mm -hmm. Buddhists take those teachings and say, oh, well, I've got to accept that new AI change. I've got to accept the Walmart destroying our local shops. And this distinction, mm -hmm. I think, is fundamental. I think that, that you're right. And I, I'm glad that at the same time, there are a strong uh, con um, component of engaged Buddhists in the world yes. today. I mean, and you have the tradition all the way back, like from Thich Nhat Hanh, starting in the 70s, of this notion of, um, because a big part of Buddhism is also about having deep compassion for all life. And that compassion, not just, again, being apart from it and noticing it, but compassion with that move towards action. And the whole notion of the bodhisattva is this beautiful <clears throat> image of somebody who has the opportunity to be totally enlightened and away from the sort of wheel of, of Dharma and says, no, actually, I see there's still suffering here in the earth. I'm going to turn back. And as long as I have any breath, as long as I have any energy and any life in me, I'll dedicate that to reduce and alleviate suffering of the world. That's a key component of Buddhism. And there's so many active and engaged Buddhists out there who follow that, which is someone that I get very energized by. And some of them you mentioned in your writings are friends of mine, like Joanna Macy, David yes. Coy. Yeah. And yeah, mm -hmm. so I've been very much connected to that engaged Buddhism. Right also in Thailand and, and Japan. But can you also say a little bit more about what you mean by cultural mindfulness? Yes, yeah, well, that's really something that to be quite um, frank, um, Yuval Noah Harari could perhaps uh, gain from a little bit if, if he were to engage in it. But because um, the, the, the whole point about cultural mindfulness is to become aware of the cultural mindset or lens that each of us has and each of us and i i have it too and we all have our blind spots basically i'm not saying that <clears throat> i'm uh, having engaged in that that i'm uh, don't have my own it, itself but the idea is that a, a worldview is something that we basically develop as human beings it's inherent in our evolution we have what i call a patterning instinct we pattern meaning into things and we we look at the world through the worldview that our culture has given us and if we don't actually notice that if we don't come across other cultures we'll never know we'll spend our whole life thinking that the world is exactly the way we see it in just the same way that a fish We'll, we'll never know that it's not in water. And you, you can look at it and see the fish swimming in water, but to the fish, it's just, that's what it is. That's what life is. And so a worldview is so powerful because we, it sort of causes us to not just make meaning, but to instill, instill values in things based on our sense of what is reality. But through cultural mindfulness, in just the same way that mindfulness in spiritual practice can often engages in noticing when we make up stories about things. So if you're sitting on the cushion and you know you hear some noise and the neighbor is doing construction and, and you can you might get annoyed and you start saying, oh, I wish I need to tell them to stop doing that. You know, and you make up this whole story. And in, in mindfulness practice, you notice that. And you can like say, okay, I could be in that story or I could choose a different way of relating to whatever it is that I'm dealing with wonderful practice. We can apply that culturally. And by doing that, we can see that our, our worldview, our dominant worldview, 
tells us stories that we take as reality. It tells us that nature is a machine. It tells us that nature is selfish and is driven by selfish genes. It tells us that humans are separate from each other and selfish, even more competitive than other creatures. And, and we think we see the world through that lens. But then when we look at indigenous cultures or other great traditions of the past, or what modern science tells us, we see that a completely different worldview is actually possible. Yeah, and I also, uh, the more I've been looking at what's been happening in these 45 years that I've been at it, <laughs> I'm seeing that there's been a very clear mainstream cultural turning mm -hmm. in the West, where, you know, in the beginning, you had sort of in the 60s and 70s, the sort of hippies, you know, wanting back to nature, back to nature. Right. We had Rachel Carson, you know, who gave us that basic building block of needing to have more holistic, interdisciplinary thinking, which is what you're also talking about. Mm -hmm. And from my point of view, what happened is that unfortunately, already far too powerful global corporations were had so much power outside of our worldview, beyond mm -hmm. the political debate, beyond left and right. They were mm -hmm. operating at a global level, making arrangements yeah. between them and governments. So mm -hmm. their power kept growing. But in the meanwhile, the appetite for returning to nature has been, I just, it, it's everywhere where people have tasted fossil fuel based commercial unnatural living. People are coming out of the cities, even Beijing and Mumbai, and particularly in the West, where people have, they've, they've actually developed a physical, emotional, and intellectual need for reconnection to the living world. This is so positive. You know, I just hope that people will start using lenses to see that there is so much hope when, when we see this thirst, why everywhere do we have the word eco or alternative put in front, yeah. holistic health, <clears throat> alternative health? Because we're not satisfied with the top-down, what ultimately now is this deregulated corporate right. system's way of doing things. Um, but I mean, do you share my optimism in that way about, <laughs> about what's happening in the West? Um, well, I certainly... Agree. I, I, I certainly share this sense of how we've had sort of two almost opposite trends <clears throat> that have been unfolding over the last few decades. Um, I mean, because we see the the the, th the stranglehold that global corporations have over all aspects of life just getting stronger and stronger. And you know, to me, one of the most mind-blowing statistics I've ever come across is that out of the hundred largest economies in the world right now, 69 of them are not countries, but these transnational global corporations. They are far and away <clears throat> more dominant than any country. Um, they basically, you know, in most countries, the politics, the government and the corporations is just a revolving door from one to the other. And um, so there's almost no distinction to make between them. They own the media. Um, they, of course, own the whole financial infrastructure. Um, and so basically almost any aspect of our life today is dominated by these global corporations. And what's so terrifying about it is that they are structured legally with one mission above all, which is to increase shareholder 
profit, shareholder value as fast as possible, as quickly as possible, which, you know, the irony is they're called persons in the United States. And if they were actual persons, um, they'd be psychopaths because only a psychopath has one single aim and they're willing to do anything and look um, all nice and friendly and everything else, as long as they just accomplish that one aim. So I find that terrifying. So that's on the one hand. And, I, and if anything, their stranglehold is only getting stronger. But I also see like you, there is a movement <clears throat> towards a completely different consciousness, more like a, um, a, an evolutionary shift towards like a more planetary consciousness. And I think <clears throat> that now as generations of people coming of age, they are beginning to realize that they are part of a larger identity, not just um, their community, even if, I mean, in some ways they're losing the identity with their community, which is what your work is so incredibly valuable to bring them back in. Um, but even people who are in the cities who, are, who have lost that sense of community do sense more and more we're part of a global shared humanity, a global Gaia, like part of a, a living earth. And they're recognizing, they're recognizing that the governments are not going to solve our problems. And I think that is where our only hope lies, is that ultimately these corporations only get their power by having to push down the actual deep instinct in every human being, every human infant that's born to love, to be connected, to be part of community, to be part of life. But they have to actually stop that from growing and like condition people to say, no, you're meant to be making money and focus on status and power. So they have to condition people to be part of this life-destroying system that, is, that has taken over our world. But people themselves want nothing more than to be part of community, part of life, to feel desired within their community and to feel that they're making a meaningful difference to others around them. Well, I, I love that you put it that way too. And I think that's an area where I think we should explore the difference between ecological cultures and mm -hmm. ecological civilization. Yes. Mm -hmm. You know, for me, civilization has always been based on expansionism and essentially grabbing from other cultures and yeah. subjugating them. And so I think a vision of moving towards ecological cultures is what we need, but this will require international collaboration. Mm -hmm. And so it needs to happen, you know, simultaneously that we rebuild, fundamentally rebuild that fabric where children can grow up feeling connected to other humans and to their place, to that right. particular tree, that particular body of water, that living world that they can experience, not as an abstract word or concept. And that's, and so Gaia and the globe and feeling at one with the globe my experience is that when people feel that experience of connectedness to others mm -hmm. and to nature, they mm -hmm. feel expansive and open to and to the whole. What, what, what yeah. would you say about that, about the distinction between cultures mm -hmm. and civilization? <clears throat> yeah, I think that it's such a crucial point that you are bringing in here. And I think one way that we can, I think, usefully look at it is Focusing on the one of nature's great principles, which 
is um, the fractal organization of things. And we know that in nature, basically all aspects of nature are fractal, that you have the same principles that apply to tiny little systems that then apply to the larger systems in which they're embedded and in which they're embedded. So it's this holarchy, as it's called, um, where a tiny cell is part of an organism, part of a, a whole species, part of an ecosystem. And in each case, what I think we see is it's not like um, quite literally like the grass of the grassroots have to sort of check in with the trees as to how they should be growing or whatever. They, they do their thing in connection with their whole way of relating. But meanwhile, they're deeply interrelated with all the other aspects of their ecosystem, which is why an ecosystem can work so well. It is a whole affecting the parts. It's also all the parts doing their thing. And this is why I feel like I do love this notion of like the global concept of an ecological civilization. And I'd, I'd love to come back to this question of civilization itself, because I think that's a key point in itself. But to your point about the sort of um, the local part of it, um, it is very much a, um, an accumulation of, it's like a fractal accumulation of all the locals, because it's only by doing, by thriving at the local level that we can really, by, but truly thriving, not by extracting from others and then like leaving them with the pollution and um, what we don't want in our poisons, but actually learning to work holistically in a community that we can then connect up with other communities and actually be part of a whole global system. And um, so that it's not like it's an, oh, do we organize at the local level or at the bigger levels or is my flourishing at the expense of somebody else's, but there's this notion of fractal flourishing where we recognize that the health of each little part actually relies on the health of the whole thing. And the health of the whole thing only arises from the health of all the different parts within it. Yeah, and you see, interesting <clears throat> enough, I would use slightly different languages and a different way of analyzing that in that as long as this extractive corporate system, and we have to always right. remember we're talking now, we're talking about the global media, we're talking about the banks, yes. we're talking about this, in effect, a type of interlinked empire mm -hmm. that is out of sight and neither left nor right political sides in the world anywhere really have addressed what's going on at that global level. So most people have remained ignorant of it, even most politicians. And the way that that power has been growing has been in the name of this very sexy term, free trade, and that's what right. we all want, and there's huge propaganda for that. But when we look at where we are today and the need to move forward, there's such a clear need for us collectively to start regulating and ultimately breaking up yes. this excessive power excessive power out of control of any democratic process or oversight. Yes. And so what I'm arguing is that, as far as I can see, the only way to do that is to insist that they can no longer play musical chairs and just keep moving around and blackmailing governments, you know, saying, if you don't give us that cheaper labor, and that cheaper, the, we're going to go elsewhere. Now, instead, democratic processes will insist that they choose, are you going to be American, are you going to be Japanese, are you going to be Swedish? And that's where they stay, place-based or localized. Mm -hmm. So that requires this global collaboration. But whether that 
And without that, we will not have healthy cellular local systems around the world where people really are empowered, where they really are deeply rooted to the natural resources on which they depend. So I'm, yeah, I'm just wondering whether the fractal nature in the living in Gaia can be replicated by human organizations and structures, or whether the human organizations and structures that are needed to ensure democratic processes, uh, greater justice, greater equality, and oversight and deliberation among mm -hmm. the local participants who are affected by different systems, mm. whether that is exactly the same as the fractal nature of reality. Mm -hmm. Are you convinced? Well, yes, I, I think um, this is a profound question, and I'd love to explore it with you right now. Um, first off, I, I just want to say how much I agree about how we must, uh, we must talk about the elephants in the room that nobody likes to talk about, which yeah. is this global corporate control of our lives. And, and, we, and we have to start getting into the political discourse, the ways in which we can control this this poison that it has, has destroying like life on earth, basically. But to your point, which I think is so interesting, is can humans organize themselves in this like larger scale way? My, my sense is that the most exciting opportunity is to learn from the, uh, from the theory of the commons, basically. Like what humans have done until the enclosures that were the basics of capitalism the last few hundred years, is they, they were, most of the world was managed under a commons structure. And there's this ridiculous um, article called The Tragedy of the Commons by the neoliberal Garrett Harding that yes. became like <clears throat> sort of just the gospel for a generation of economists, which has been shown to be a bunch of utter baloney, basically. Yeah. Um, and in fact, the commons is far from a tragedy. The, it's actually the way in which humans work together well to, to flourish, to share their resources, because it's not just a matter of saying, oh, well, somebody else will take care of it. But being part of a commons is not just a matter of there's an asset which is sharedly owned. It's a way of life. It's a way of recognizing your interconnectedness with community, with future generations, with whatever it is that you're, that you're kind of shepherding. And, you know, that great Nobel Prize winning <clears throat> economist, Eleanor Ostrom, Develop what she calls yeah. the principles of the commons, yeah. which um, she has ex explored. And I think that there is every reason to believe it's, it's doable. It can be applied at scale in just that holarchy kind of way that the same principles that can apply within a group of a few hundred people can apply within communities working together and then can apply all the way up to a global government. Or I should say not so much a government, but a global um, a sort of group that might have influential powers over those kind of decisions that the grassroots recognizes need to be solved at a more global layer. I, I don't, I think the word government is immediately uh, problematic. Uh, yeah. yeah. And I guess, I mean, I think, you know, basically we're in agreement. I just think that we've got to be really careful because there are too many people who would not understand the, the complexities and the difficulties already of a government of the United States versus a government of Sweden, New Zealand, Bhutan. Uh, and my experience, my lived experience is that 
even in places, say, like India, where you had this cobbled together government of India, you still had in the 70s, 80s, it's changing very rapidly, but you still had, in effect, decentralized economic structures and right. through that, more decentralized political power. And so what I am absolutely convinced of is that as the institution to which we pay tax, to which we go with our demands, is more and more removed, and you're mm -hmm. part of larger and larger numbers, right. you, you're, you're getting into a situation which structurally cannot support healthy democracy. Yeah. Oh, I agree. I agree completely with you. Oh, yeah. Okay. And, and what comes to my mind <clears throat> is this powerful notion of subsidiarity. Yes, um, yes, yes. Which is ironic because it was first developed by one of the most hierarchical authoritarian institutions in the world, which is the Catholic Church, yeah. which I always find so interesting. But they yeah, found I it was a great way. To, well, they found it was a powerful way yeah. to distribute power yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. throughout the world in a very effective way. But subsidiarity, uh, for somebody who hasn't come across that term before, means basically pushing power to the lowest level possible um, to where it's felt the most by the people who actually um, can en engage with it. So it's really like to the grassroots. So, um, so wherever somebody is affected by what happens in a certain region, they should be the people to actually make the decisions about it. Um, and it should be, always be pushed down to that lowest level. And that's when only then when there's something where clearly a community needs to work with other communities around to make larger decisions, which happen all the time because we live in a deeply interconnected world of systems within systems, then um, still they might get together, but the power is coming from below rather than uh, being enforced from above. Yeah, and then see, related to that, I would argue mm -hmm. that we do need to be humble and, and aware that the jump from the commons to the idea of the global commons, we need there to be aware. We're talking about a very big assumption there that that could work. And let's not get caught up in the language, you know, the commons, what we were talking about with the commons was lived reality of shared land, shared right. water, and human scale communities able to see each other, able to see the water and the land yes. and taking joint decision. And you see, that's why I always dream of waking more Western environmentalists and social activists up to the need for more human scale. Because mm -hmm. what, I, what, we, what you also will understand is, is the importance of experiential knowledge as mm -hmm. opposed to the abstraction mm -hmm. of the idea. And, and my dream is that we understand what would happen if the measure of GDP were going to be shared and deliberated at the local level. It would be impossible right. to clear cut every tree on the mountaintop and say, wow, progress, impossible. People, you know, we're, we're not stupid, but we become more and more stupid with levels of abstraction. Mm -hmm. And that's where we're now in an Orwellian world, which is, you know, the, the concepts that are being fed to us about sustainability, nature-based solutions, net zero, these concepts, we're buying into them and not realizing that the actual reality behind them is, is the opposite, essentially the opposite. Yeah, I, I think you're com completely correct on that. And that's where 
One of the things I love about, for example, the demands of Extinction Rebellion, who have been so effective around the world in raising attention to these things, is for citizens' assemblies, is to like just tell the government to like stop lying to us and stop pretending you're coming up with solutions and get the power into sortition-based citizens' assemblies. And sortition basically means just like um, you randomly select people for a jury. <clears throat> you randomly select people from the citizenry and people would at first think, well, you couldn't do that. You need have expertise. That's the whole thing. It's like this trust in the dignity and the innate intelligence of our fellow human beings is what we can actually believe in. Because it's when, when people are given that kind of authority, when their people are given the responsibility to care about others around them and to care about future generations, they step up to it. They take it seriously, especially when they're not in some sort of corruption system where they're, they're getting pressured from people trying to sort of give them more status and power. And that's where I think those are the sort of potentials that lead to a, a different political future. Yeah, and that again is so much about that decentralization and mm -hmm. subsidiarity. And, and I think you would also agree that their reliance, the top-down perspective mm -hmm. is the reliance on the experts. And with right. your understanding of systems and holistic thinking, you realize that over-specialization is a big part of our problem that people have not been trained, as Rachel Carson pointed out, to in any way examine the impact of a particular manipulation, be it in chemistry or genetic engineering, on, on the totality. And I mean, you're, you, you, this is what a lot of your book is about. Yeah, no, I, I think that is com completely true. And, and, and I'm, I'm not implying that the, um, the subject experts don't have a very significant role to play. Um, but when you have, if you had a citizen's assembly, for example, just imagine a, a, a jury, um, people use their common sense. And so an expert comes along and says, this is, this is how this works. And that's necessary. It's important to get that. But then people's common sense is what can cohere it. And oftentimes, to your point, uh, in our modern society, um, this expertise leads people to know more and more about less and less. And that leads them to basically not be able to put those connections between things rather than, and, and that's, it's this connection between things that allows us to see things in a more systemic way and to actually have some of that cultural mindfulness to step outside a little bit and get a bigger perspective. Yeah, this is so, you know, this is why when I first read your stuff, I thought you must have been living in Asia for years like I had. <laughs> I don't know. How, what, do you I wish. Fact, what do you attribute to the fact that you were able to step out? Because that's what I always have felt with myself. Yeah. Coming yeah. from, you know, this other world. How do you, what do you attribute to your having been able to step out that way to look at the world? Essentially through that nature-based Eastern Right. Um, well, um, I mean, it, interestingly, when I was a, a student, I, I, I kind of had this idea of going to the East uh, because I wanted to discover something alternative. And ironically, what drew me to the United States where I ended up coming 
was all the pictures of Woodstock. And I was looking at all these hippies like on, on psychedelics and go, wow, that's what I want for myself. Little did I know by the time I got to the United States, it was 1981 and the whole world had changed on me. But I, I sort of got, then I sort of had to, <laughs> then I went in a whole different direction. But, um, but you know, to answer your question um, more kind of centrally, um, ultimately, yeah, I went through a, a, a total meltdown in my own life, in the middle of my life, when I'd started a, a company, part of that same system that I'm critiquing now, um, which is why I know it so well, which is why I know what goes through the minds of the CEOs of these companies, because I was one. I started a company, I took it public, and, um, and it collapsed uh, um, because I had to leave it too soon to look after my wife at the time who passed away. Um, and so everything collapsed for me. And I was determined that whatever I did in the future was going to be truly meaningful, but I was equally determined not to take somebody else's word for it, whether it was some guru or some uh, Western scientist or whatever, to really figure it out myself. But I wanted something that would truly appeal to my reason as well as my heart, not just one or the other, but could really feel like an integrated way of knowing. But that was what led me to other cultural traditions. And for me, what was so fascinating was as I went deeper into East Asian cultural traditions like Taoism, Buddhism, and this incredible tradition that almost nobody in the West knows about called Neo-Confucianism, which I love because it, it actually synthesizes so many of those great traditions in one. Uh, I discovered that modern system sciences lead to the same underlying insight that those traditions were talking about, which is this deep interconnectedness of all things. And once I saw that they were basically describing similar insights just from two perspectives, I began to realize, well, this split that we are told that exists between um, the West and East or science and spirituality, um, all these things are actually full splits. They don't exist. It's possible to recognize a sense of oneness with all um, and to um, totally um, buy into you know, what uh, the hard sciences tell us about the world, that it's not that science tells us that there's no meaning to the world and spirituality tells us something else. The opposite, so when we feel that sense of deep oneness, it actually is our own intuitive sense of what science real good science in modern times is actually showing us that we are deeply interconnected. So to me, that was a huge kind of light bulb that led to a lot of my thinking at, from that point on. Well, I don't know if I told you, you know, Fritjof Capra was a close friend of mine. Mm -hmm. and, and, and that for me was, you know, as it happens, you know, I actually read it right. in the dark. And so I had become wow. you know, completely enamored of this worldview and culture. And then yeah. uh, read that book. And as you say, exactly, it's, it's also, it's so healing to understand that that wisdom is out there and that it, it, and that it doesn't have to be contradictory. However, yeah. I think, I'm, I'm sure you would agree with me that my take on things is that most of what now goes on in the name of science has become corrupted and has become removed from that wisdom and that truth that has been brought to us by, you know, by great thinking scientists, you know, from Einstein, and, you know, particularly in the world of physics, actually. But in the meanwhile, sort of practical everyday science is in the service of this huge empire of wealth creation. 
And, and for me, what's very frightening is that the span between so-called discovery and market application mm -hmm. has been shrinking when it should actually have been extended, you know, with right. inventions like genetic mm -hmm. engineering, we shouldn't be, we should do exactly the opposite. Mm -hmm. And we might even have to say, well, if we don't know what the consequences of this is gonna be, you know, a million years from now, maybe we need to stay away from it. Right. I'm sure you Yeah, know. and that's uh, the whole thing about the, the precautionary principle is so, yeah. so crucial. And um, yeah, my own, my own sense of the, the whole sort of domain of science, which is obviously vast in, in the world today, is that basically it's quite complex. But I mean, my own interaction with many scientists and just looking at things like something like um, the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, um, the, like you have thousands of scientists around the world caring passionately about the earth, caring passionately about doing the right thing. There's um, these letters that have been written, World Scientists Warning to Humanity, where thousands of scientists have signed on to these statements saying, if we continue at our current rate, we're headed for destruction. Then, and, and so there's so many scientists all in all different fields who care so much about really taking their intelligence, what their whole life's energy to make the world a better place. And I totally respect that. Mm -hmm. And I, what I see is that this corporate domination that we've been talking about earlier is such a stranglehold. It basically, um, it seizes everything in both science in terms of uh, deep science like research and any kind of technology. And it immediately warps it towards how can we turn this into shareholder profits? Mm -hmm. And of course, scientists are human beings like other people. And so they've got mortgages to pay and, and, uh, and bills to pay, et cetera. And so some scientists may, just like an, an entrepreneur, might start out with an idea that they want to make the world a better place, but they get sucked into this all-consuming machine, which, and so all of a sudden, some scientist gets an offer of triple the salary um, and stock options if he'll join one of these big uh, uh, chemical companies and use his, his research or her research to, um, you know, to be in service of the company. And they'll even still, and I, I, as I said, I was in a company, I know how this works. Corporations are incredibly good at selling this lie that you can do well by doing good. In the, and the writer Anand Giridharadas did this fab, fabulous, wrote this fabulous book, Winners Take All, where he that kind of showed, he sort of blasted this myth. But they're so good at making you feel like, oh, I'm doing good um, in this department. I'm finding a cure for this. And so I'll just keep my head down, just work on this stuff. Meanwhile, they compartmentalize. So they don't realize that the work they're doing is being linked with this work elsewhere and here to ultimately find a more efficient way to destroy the earth or, um, dis or just basically take people's livelihoods or destroy the quality of lives of other people or other living beings around the world. But so I think that's the thing is to make the distinction between the scientists themselves who want to be doing good and the system that sucks them in to a uh, this kind of all-consuming uh, monster, basically. Yeah, and I would also add to that, not just the scientists, but even the bureaucrats in government or the bureaucrats inside mm -hmm. the corporations that, mm -hmm. from my point of view, 
what's happened, that's what I meant by over-specialization also, is that mm -hmm. there has been almost nobody, you know, uh, individually, you know, body briefed with understanding what the accumulation at this top means outside of political view at that international level. And, you know, I've been trying to make, made a short film to try to show that those global traders have had too much power from the very beginnings of our modern economy. And we need to understand how it was that global traders that benefited from rape, pillage, genocide, mm -hmm. slavery, and exactly. later on colonialism, how that wealth accumulation has this background, a foundation of force, and that in the modern era, that wealth accumulation continued, often, again, out of very good intentions among politicians and society. They bought into the belief after the world wars that we need mm -hmm. one integrated economy. So let's have the mm -hmm. World Bank, the IMF, and the GATT to integrate right. everything. And that's, to me, the good news about this is I feel that most people have simply not seen this for what it is or why it's happening. And that many people, the multitude and the majority inside the corporations even, don't want to contribute to the destruction. And that's really good news. But I think we need clarity about how that functions and what we need to do to change it. I think that I think that's so true. I agree. And I think in addition to that, we need to really flesh out alternative models so that people can see there is an alternative, but which actually comes back to you, you started this conversation off about Harare. And that, that was actually my other critique um, about Harare's work is that he loves to say in his books, you know, um, there is no alternative. Basically, in the, uh, the way the 20th century worked, there was capitalism and communism. Communism collapsed. There was no alternative, capitalism. Basically, just words right out of Margaret Thatcher's mouth, uh, this famous thing she said, there is no alternative. Absolutely. And that is bunk, basically. Um, but unfortunately, it seems Harari isn't aware of the, like, the work of people like you and so many others who have spent decades showing there are alternatives, alternatives in economics, alternatives in the way of business creation, in the way of human organization, the way of agriculture, every place there are alternatives. The issue is not that there is no alternatives. The issue is that the corporate media is owned by the same system that is wanting to maintain its own growth and destruction of life. And so those alternatives don't get talked about um, in the shows. So people like you and I will do a podcast, but we're not there on CNN uh, wow. being listened to in this conversation by 50 million people or whatever. Yeah. And that's the re that's what the issue is. Yeah. And, you know, in addition to that, particularly in terms of my framing with, with this realization that we need to reconstitute the real lived community fabric and the connection to nature, the deep connection to nature. So we need to reconstitute that. And that's a very local, very human scale, small scale project. And there, having been involved in doing that at the grassroots around the world, I do every day get these good news stories, but mm -hmm. it's all so small that right. even when we try to make it visible, it becomes difficult. But of course, you know, if, if CNN were at our disposal and we could right. run program after program, it wouldn't be very difficult to wake people up 
to the yeah. reality that most of humanity is not greedy and aggressive by nature. Most of humanity longs for good relationships with others and mm -hmm. with the earth. No one wants to see these animals treated like machines and torture right. the way they are. And no one wants to see our children imprisoned in a type of schooling system that right. disconnects them from themselves and nature. And in fact, you know, one of your good news stories was also introducing me to Dr. Navas, who I hadn't heard of. Is that how you pronounce it, Navas? Who um, has this Darshan, training no, and actually she pronounces her name Narvaez. Darshan oh, Narvaez. Narvaez. Yeah. Narvaez. Yeah. Right. And, and just for anybody um, who's uh, listening into this and doesn't know Darshan Narvaez, her last name is spelled N-A-R-V-A-E-Z. Z. Um, yeah. Z or Z. And um, she's an expert in <clears throat> um, infant development. And she has combined that with a great expertise in indigenous practices. And what she shows is what she called the evolved nest, that humans have evolved to actually be raised in what are basically nomadic hunter-gatherer type communities, where there's um, just fluidity and just love all around, not a single family um, structure at all, and not with this authoritarian patriarchal um, discipline-based approach, but actually just to um, hang out with other kids of different ages and sort of play together and come up with their own ways of playing and sort of imitate the grown-ups. And then they just, um, they naturally feel loved and, and cared for by the community and they grow up to be healthy. And that she points out that so much of the cultural pathology we have of the individual pathology is a result of the cultural pathology. And infants get raised in these patriarchal dominant uh, domination systems where they're learning, they have to learn to repress their own feelings, to repress positive uh, emotions like love and caring. Um, and especially if they're, if they're male, of course, to absolutely not show any sort of softness that they might feel in themselves. And then they get to develop all these internal um, things to repress those feelings, which they then externalize, which leads to so much of the political polarization um, and repression that we see around us. Well, you know, in, in my book, Ancient Futures, I basically right. describe that. And yeah. I would add to that that such a key important element of it was that, as you said, that each mother, each parent had several caretakers for every child. Right. Yes. And that they weren't segregated into separate age groups and into this little nuclear family. And I, I, I really now see that what that segregation into the nuclear family does is to create this unnatural sort mm -hmm. of bipolar structure that's far too intense. Right. Every yes. child has so much energy and is so social, needs yeah. many more people around it. And it right. needs that constant love and affirmation. And yes. what we've done is, yeah, it's just so tragic. But if people were more aware, again, you know, with the bigger picture, they could come together, even living in the sort of typical Western city, to do more joint community-based activities to bring together a bigger group and what I often talk about as more significant others for each child. So it's not yes. just, and of course, as she also talks about, they're cultivating the connection to nature mm -hmm. so that children don't just go out to play football, which is fine, but also help to 
to just see if they can feel something about that tree or the sky or that bird, a, a more, if you like, spiritual, meditative right. appreciation of nature that can cultivate that expanded sense of self. And I'm wondering, how did you find her? You know, is that part of your research? Oh, yeah, it, interesting. So um, yeah, way. actually, um, I came across her <clears throat> work originally when I was researching for my earlier book, The Patterning Instinct, uh -huh. which looks at how different cultures um, make sense of the universe, all the way from hunter-gatherer times to the present. And then in this most recent book, um, I, I refer to her work even more. And um, I've just been super impressed by what she's doing. She's actually just uh, put together a book with a great indigenous scholar in North America called uh, Four Arrows, um, looking at great indigenous insights um, huh. and all kinds of different elements of human experience. Ooh. Everything from like group decision-making to relationship with nature to pretty much everything you can think of that's part of our human experience. And in each case, they look at what an, an, an indigenous elder explains about something. And then both of them use their scholarship to bring these layers of understanding around it. It's, it's the book's just coming out uh, soon, the next few months. And it's really a special contribution. Oh, <laughs> very interesting. Certainly right up my alley. But, you know, interestingly enough, too, my experience is because you remember I lived with these people over, you know, many, many years, half of every year. And, and for, you know, before I wrote Ancient Futures, it was 16 years. And I saw these dramatic changes as modernity came in. And I also saw that when you introduce into the minds of young children, even by the age of five, mm. the idea that there's another superior culture that's mm. so wealthy and so powerful. And my parents, they're still farming, we're living out in a village. Mm. And here I'm seeing that if I want to be, you know, have power and have respect. Right. This so insidious part of this modern system is intervening in the desire to be loved, to belong yes. with the message. You're going to get it if you have those Nike running shoes later right. on if you've got the iPad and then the fancy car and you'll get that love. And of course, it leads to exactly the opposite. Exactly. So more more no, I, I think you're so right. And um, this is actually something I describe in my most recent book, The Web of Meaning, how basically what the corporations have done, I call them basically like the corporate Duca machine. You know, yeah. the, there's this yeah. um, incredibly powerful yeah. idea in Buddhism of Dukkha, which is, you know, that sort of suffering of always wanting something else, never yeah. being satisfied with yeah. the moment you're in. And it's it, partly it's a human condition that we can recognize and work with. Yeah. But what the corporations do by their very nature is actually use dukkha, actually try to impose it on people, make them, if they are satisfied with everything in their lives, that's no good. That's not going to make them more money. So make them dissatisfied, show them that there's something better, give the power to the people who buy more, who have more power and, or have more money. And so make the whole thing that what they, what's known as the hedonic treadmill, get everyone on this hedonic treadmill. So they have to keep running faster and faster and just to become part of this machine, ultimately to line the pockets of these mega billionaires yeah. Um, and just to keep everybody unhappy. So it's like those corporations work absolutely against the long, the sustainable well-being of humanity. 
they, they're not just destroying the rest of non-human life on earth, they're destroying the very living um, potential for well-being of all human beings. Yeah, because you know, to add, just to be clear, that that dissatisfaction, the most fundamental one is the dissatisfaction with yourself, that you're not good enough. So the destruction right. of self-esteem, that's right. what breeds ego. That's what breeds right. dissent. I must prove that I'm important, that I'm great. And the insensitivity to the needs of others. So it has, so it is, I think we have to agree. It's an evil system. And yes. if the people who are inside that machine-like grinding within those Dukkha corporations are not necessarily, are not evil people. They're not at all. people, part of a machine that they just, you know, exactly. It's our job to lay this out clearly so we can all see it. So that right. none of us will want to participate in it. You know, it, yeah. it couldn't be more evil. You know, that's the thing. I, I think that's what's so hard for people to get a sense of. It took me a lot of years of doing my own research to finally recognize this is a, this system is it's absolutely designed. And it, and personally, you know, I'm I Sure, there might be a few of these um, right-wing neoliberal billionaires and think tanks where people truly are cynical and actually know like, oh, I just want power. I don't care if I, I mean, I'm, I'm not saying there are not some evil people yeah. around there, but yeah. for the most part, to your point, even the, the people with the power are not evil. They actually, they want to feel they're doing good. And so they will buy into stories that tell them that they're doing good. It doesn't, it's not part, unless you're a psychopath, it's not part of human nature to want to feel, know that you're causing harm around you. And yet the system itself is actually, it's, a, I, I, we can think of almost like a, a runaway AI. In fact, yeah. I've written an article that says like um, that that's the real AI. So many people in the technology world worry about what would happen if we developed an artificial intelligence that just optimized for something other than human well-being, how dangerous that would be. And they have these ideas like, supposing you had a, it said, okay, I want to make staples. And then it decided to turn the whole earth into one gigantic staple manufacturing facility and kill all life just so we can make staples. That's the danger. So they say, we need to watch that. What they don't realize is that we created that AI hundreds of years ago in realm, basically in Europe around the time of the, the rise of capitalism with, with capitalism, basically, with the for-profit, uh, shareholder-owned, limited liability corporation. That, that simple structure is basically become just like an AI. It is there solely to reproduce itself, to make more profit, more money, and suck human beings into its structure. And that's what we need to recognize. Yeah. And, and also clearly spell out that it's making more and more money for fewer and fewer and fewer. Right. So that exactly. in every country, this obscene gap is to be seen. Every single country. Yeah. And it's obscene. And it again, is. the vast majority of humanity don't want this. So that's again for me, while the worldview shift, in other words, understanding this system and then understanding the system of life and deciding now, are we going to be supporting a man-made system, patriarchal man-made system right. that takes us further and further from life, from our own well-being, right. destroying life or not, or are we going to be clear that we want to support the systems of life and health and that that is also the system, you know, what we call 
the economics of happiness. It's the well being right. of humans and all of life. But do you want to say something maybe before we end about how you see and why you place diversity as number one, the first principle for ecological civilization? Yes, well, um, the idea of, an, of ecological civilization that I get so excited by is this recognition that life itself has developed principles that have worked really well for hundreds of millions of years. Ecosystems can last for millions of years and deal with all kinds of changes in climate, um, unexpected events, and keep resilient and healthy. And so we have to um, imagine what would it look like if we actually change not just the economics and not just the politics and not just one element, but the entire basis of our civilization from one that was wealth accumulating and based on extraction and exploitation to one that was based on the principles of life, basically setting the conditions for flourishing for all humans on a regenerated earth. And to your point, one of those principles we see in all ecosystems is diversity, that it's all the, all the parts doing their separate thing as part of a bigger system that you get, you get that resilience. And just like in our bodies, um, my body wouldn't do so well if I just had one type of cell in my body, but I've got dozens and dozens of different types, hundreds of different types of cells, which are really good at being a heart cell or a blood cell or whatever. And they also are part of the whole and they work together to allow me to be healthy as an organism and while they're doing their separate things. And similarly, in, if we apply that to a society, so what that means is that we can absolutely celebrate different ethnic groups, different groups that define themselves by their own way of defining themselves, whether it's LGBTQ or a particular um, an, an indigenous group here or a group that um, identifies as a particular type of, there could be all kinds, untold millions of groups. And at the same time, each of these groups recognizing that they're, uh, they're part of something bigger and that they can totally fill out their uniqueness as a particular kind of group and be celebrated by others, not being seen as a threat by the majority because they're different, but actually be celebrated bringing richness and uh, like so much more resilience and kind of abundance of quality to our overall society. It's to me, it's such a simple way to look at how society can be organized. And again, it's so different from our sort of the way in which our um, mainstream society thinks about those things. And also, you know, unfortunately, what's so different about what you're doing is that you're, I see one of those rare men and maybe humans who's really interested in ideas and rethinking the worldview but with the motivation of compassion and concern for seeing these ideas implemented for the well-being of, of life itself, of humans. Yes. So I'm really grateful to you, Jeremy, and I, I, I'm, mm. it's a great, great honor to talk to you, and I, I really hope that your mm. message will get out more widely mm. and that we can keep having more conversations. Well, th thank you so much, Helena. I'm a huge admirer of all that you've done over the decades. And really, honestly, I, I feel the honor is mine to just be in this conversation with you. And thank you so much for what you've done and are doing right now. To 
help raise the call for fundamental systems change through economic localization, subscribe to this podcast, follow us on social media, and join the Local Futures mailing list at localfutures.org. And if you're feeling ready to contribute to transformation in your own community, check out our Localization Action Guide, which describes hands-on strategies to sow the seeds for a life-affirming future. Until next time, thanks for listening to the Local Futures Podcast.